0: Amen. You may be seated. Let's start this morning in James chapter one. Now, to put the book of James in context, let me give you a little historical reference. The book of James was the first of the New Testament letters written to the churches. It is widely accepted to be uh, written in about AD 44 which is about 10 years after Jesus' resurrection uh, to correspond with the book of Acts it takes place about the same time as Acts chapter 10 when Peter goes down to Cornelius' household and um, preaches the gospel to the Gentiles they get saved, they get filled with the Spirit as well and uh, it brings new understanding to the church in Jerusalem about what God's plan is and what His will is and what He will do Now, James is the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. He's Jesus' half-brother. They have the same mother, but not the same father. Joseph was James' father. God was Jesus' father. From a natural standpoint, I'm talking about. And church history tells us that uh, Jesus appeared to James not long after he was raised from the dead. And that started James on the path that led him to be the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, which he is by the time this takes place. We see that confirmed in the book of Acts as well, because in Acts chapter 15, it tells us about how there was a council that was held at Jerusalem so that they could come to an understanding of what is required of us as children of God. Paul was out in the Gentile regions, starting churches, and many times almost every time that we have record of in the, uh, in the book of Acts. But many times the Jews would come from Jerusalem and try to impose the keeping of the law of Moses upon the, those who had already been saved, saved by the sacrifice of Jesus. And so that became a real issue. So Peter, I'm sorry, Paul, and um, some of his company go to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and the elders that are there. And there's a real interesting verse in Acts chapter 15. I think it's about verse 29, somewhere like that. It says that everybody had their say. Peter had his say before the the gathering of the apostles and the elders about how he was an apostle to the the Jews. Paul tells all the things that God has done in his life and ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. And then it says, and James answered... And so it, it leads us to the understanding that where everybody had an opportunity to say what they believed the will of God was in this situation, in this case, whether the Jews, uh, I'm sorry, whether the Gentiles who had been saved were required to keep the law of Moses or not, and, and things related to that, James has the final word. That's quite a position of authority. So he has the final word, and of course he says that... Um, the blood of Jesus is sufficient. No keeping of the law of Moses. But they put a, little, a few little caveats in there that they would keep themselves from eating blood of animals and um, worshiping idols. And, of course, everybody was on board with that. That's not something anybody would want to do anyway. So when James is writing to the church, the first letter to the church, those first days of the church fascinate me. Um. The confidence that God had in his word and the ability, the power of his word to change people's lives with virtually no organization whatsoever. The book of Acts tells us that after Jesus was raised from the dead, the 120 were filled with the Holy Ghost and then they immediately went out getting people saved. We've got a lot of information in the book of Acts about how to get people saved. But there's not a lot of information about what the churches were preaching to the people that were saved. The um, the letters written to the church, particularly those written by Paul, revealing who we are in Christ, you can understand the need and the necessity for those things. But they didn't start off right away. There were many years that the church was on its own, in At least in some respect. Without any organization for how things should be done. Yet God knew that his word would prevail. God knew that the word was strong enough to lead people and to keep them in place. Now there was a lot they didn't know I'm sure. Well there's no way for them to know it. We know that we have a, a leading or a guiding or an unction from the Holy Ghost. On the inside of us that tells us what's right and what's wrong. John wrote it this way in... Um, A.D. 95, 96, somewhere like that. Many years, 50 years after the book of James was written. John wrote that you have an unction from the Holy One and you know all things. Well, people still struggle over that today. There's a lot of the church world that doesn't even bother to consider the reality of that or what it means or what it will do for us. One of the Great areas of misunderstanding is how to be led by the Spirit of God. And it seems to me that very few churches, modern day churches, even tell you that you can be. Percentage wise, I would guess that it's way less than 1% of the church that knows anything about being led by the Holy Ghost. Well, if you don't know anything about being led by the Holy Ghost, if you don't know that He will lead you and you don't know how He's going to lead you, then how are you going to be led? It winds up with a lot of hit and miss. More miss than hit, I think. So when James writes to the church, this is a very significant act or moving of the Holy Ghost. Now notice in chapter uh, 1, verse 1, James tells us who he's writing to. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. James is the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, which is primarily a Jewish church. The vast majority of people that are in the Jewish church under James' pastoring are Jews that have found out about Jesus. But there's a lot of overlap, a lot of unnecessary continuation of the keeping of the law of Moses that's involved in that. And every time the churches, the Gentile churches where Paul is... And has started. The thing that creates a problem is Jews coming from Jerusalem to try to impose this law of Moses on them too. Now in Acts chapter 7 it tells us about Stephen stoning and Paul's agreement with that. His participation in that. Holding the cloaks and the coats of those who do the stoning and killing of Stephen. Then in Acts chapter 8 it tells us in the beginning of the chapter that there was a great persecution against the churches in Jerusalem. Now, this is not worldwide. It's specifically a persecution by the religious elders, the Jewish elders, Jewish council against the church at Jerusalem. And it tells us that many of the Jews scattered abroad. You'll find that the church did its most growing, the biggest part of its growth and spread into the world in the book of Acts because of persecution. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying God uses persecution to scatter the church or to spread the church. But that's just the reality of how it worked. When there was persecution, people went to other places, other areas, other regions, other cities. But they maintained their Christianity and so the Christianity spread. So this group in Acts chapter 8 that left because of the persecution in the church of Jerusalem, specifically in the church of Jerusalem, are the ones that James is writing to. Now there's no formal documents, there's no Bible There's nothing except the Old Testament scripts and um, scrolls that give anybody any information about God whatsoever. Church services or the function of the church has to be by the spontaneous move of the Holy Ghost. Has to be. There's no other option. Nowadays, you've got churches that say, well, we stick with the Bible. And they think that justifies them to put away the moving of the Holy Ghost or what the Bible says about how the Holy Ghost moves or whatever. Well, that wasn't an option back then. And so what will James, inspired by the Holy Ghost, to be the first writer to the church that's spread and scattered abroad? What's going to be the first thing that James is prompted by the Holy Ghost to talk about? Trouble. Trouble. He knows the people that are going to hear of these things that he's writing, this letter that's going to be scattered abroad too and go to the places where the the Christians fled to and so forth. He knows that this word is going to get around, but he knows their experience already. He knows they've experienced trouble and that's why they left Jerusalem. So his first comment, his first message, we could even say the Holy Ghost's first message to the church is what to do in trouble. What do we do? Verse two, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. I have to think from a natural standpoint that the Jews that hear this, the Christians that hear this, Christian Jews that hear this message taught in whatever place, whatever locality, whatever gathering they find themselves in. I'm thinking that their first thought is that James has lost his mind. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. The word temptation is test, trial, or affliction. And James says, count that like it's joyful. Are you kidding? We lost our home? And we're supposed to count this as joyful? Count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. How many of you look forward to trouble? No? How come? It's a joyful experience. No, it's not. It's to be counted as its joy. Now, anytime you have to count something as joy, that means something very specific. And that means it's not already. If you have to count it as joy, if you have to make yourself be joyful or find joy in it, that it indicates it's a change of attitude or a change of thinking Then what's common and normal for us. So the first thing, first words out of the Holy Ghost mouth to the church, the New Testament church, change your attitude about trouble. Change the way you look at trouble. Don't allow trouble to make you feel a certain way. I wonder what the Holy Ghost message to us is. God never changes. Change your attitude about trouble. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, test trials, or afflictions, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Something the Holy Ghost tells us right off the bat is that trouble doesn't last. For those who change their attitude about trouble. Now there's not one word in the Bible that says, that tells us that trouble won't last to those who don't change their attitude about trouble. So it's up to you. Trouble's gonna come whether you want it or not. Trouble's gonna come because we've got an enemy in this world who stirs up persecution, did in their day, will in our day, maybe to varying degrees in different ways. But we've got an enemy that's gonna stir up trouble and bring affliction or hard times to us. Your choice. It's coming anyway. Your choice on the attitude you take to it. If you change your attitude to make your attitude one of joy. Then trouble won't last. If you don't. It probably will. It probably will last. So he says count it all joy when you fall into trouble. Knowing this. Please notice that knowledge has a lot to do with trouble. Knowing this. Knowledge has a lot to do with what you change your attitude to trouble, about trouble, toward. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. That perfect and entire wanting nothing has to mean escape from trouble. It has to. Otherwise, it's not relevant. Knowing this. That the triangle of your faith worketh patience. But if you let patience have its perfect work, you'll come out of trouble, lacking nothing. So if the trouble you're under is financial, patience will bring, the triangle of your faith, which worketh patience, will bring you to the place where you don't have any more financial trouble. If you're being attacked with sickness and disease... Then changing your attitude toward trouble and letting patience have its perfect work will bring you to the place where you walk in healing and health. Perfect perfect and entire, wanting nothing. But it all depends on your attitude toward trouble. Everything hinges on that. Now James starts talking about wisdom. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, which giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. Why is he talking about wisdom? If he's changed topics, then don't you think he should have wrapped up the first one a little better? Don't you think he should have said, now, all right, that's an important point that we made about trouble and affliction and tribulation and so forth. But now let's move on to other things. But he doesn't. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. He's got to be talking about wisdom about what to do in trouble. Has to be. So he says, if you need wisdom, if you're missing wisdom to know what to do in the middle of your trouble. So that you can count it joy, so that you can let your faith, the trying of your faith work patience, so that you can let patience have its perfect work. If you need wisdom about that, God will give it to you. He'll show you. But there's a caveat here. There's a condition. But let him ask in faith. Nothing wavering. For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. In other words, he's saying the surefire way, the absolute certain way to go under rather than to go over is to waver. Well, what does that tell us? That tells us our attitude toward trouble has got to be a solid, stable, constant, always position. Without that solid, stable, constant, always position trouble won't leave and you won't have victory over it your choice your call but that's how it works he that wavers is like a waver like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the lord so you've got to be solid unwavering steady and constant in your asking for faith I'm sorry, asking for wisdom to know what to do in your situation. You've got to be steadfast, solid, constant, always in your position concerning God's deliverance of the trouble or from the trouble in order for it to work. Because he says, James says, by the Holy Ghost, the man that wavers can't ever expect to receive anything from God. Now, folks, I'm going to throw something at you here and you decide for yourself how you see it. But this is the way I see it. It looks to me that based on that, 90% of the church isn't going to get anything from God. Now, my number's just a guess, but I can't imagine that I'm high. If anything, I'm guessing I'm low. It may be 95% of the church that doesn't get anything from God. It may be 98% or 99% of of the church that doesn't get anything from God. Because outside of people that I know and have fellowship with and want to continue to have fellowship with, I don't see a whole lot of people that are solid and steady and stable. I look at the church world, especially in America. I look at the church world in America, and nobody knows why anything is happening. Nobody seems to understand how common events or current events in society that are going on around us, how that relates to the Bible. I see a lot of people trying to excuse it, the things that are going on, things like abortion and homosexuality and gay marriage and shooters and terrorists and everybody else. I see the church taking a lot of positions, trying to use the Bible or trying to use Christianity to excuse it or look the other way but I don't see a whole lot of the church is solid and steady. Do you? Every time there's a hurricane, once they get over the political purposes that the left tries to use concerning global warming, then the church pipes up and says, well, why did this happen? Well, you silly fool, because you live on the earth. That's why it happened. (laughs) There aren't any hurricanes in heaven. Which means it's not God's will for there to be hurricanes Anything that's not in heaven Means it's not God's will for it to be there Which means if it's happening here It's not God that's behind it Now how much more simple Do the things of God get than that But how much of the church world Accepts that to be true I'll let you guess and create your own number. My number looks really small. So he says, let not that man, the man that wavers, think that he shall receive anything from, of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. A man that's not constant, a man that's not steady, a man that's not always, when it comes to the word and comes to the things that God says, That man is unstable in everything. And that describes the modern-day church, in my opinion. The vast majority of it. Now, Jesus said some things about tribulation. He said in John chapter 16, verse 33, he said, in this world, you're going to have tribulation, test trials and afflictions. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. So he's got to be saying the same thing that James is saying by the Holy Ghost. He's got to be saying there's a way out of trouble. Let me even qualify that a little bit further, he's got to be saying that there is a victorious way to overcome trouble. Not just waiting for something to end, but walking in victory through it. That's got to be true, doesn't it? The psalm says, Psalm 34, David wrote a psalm inspired by the Holy Ghost and he said, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Righteous. And the Lord delivers them out of some of them. Well, half. No, the Lord delivers them from them all. So there's got to be a way for victory. There's got to be a means of success. No matter what trouble comes or how severe it is. There has to be a means of success if the Bible's true. Thank God it is. Peter wrote to the church, primarily the Jews... And he said, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial that you're under. Now, he's probably talking about the persecution. He's probably talking about the Roman persecution against the church that increased and intensified through the years of the of the first generation of the church. He's probably talking about that or has that in mind specifically when he talks about the fiery trials. He said, don't think that it's a strange thing that these things have come upon you. The devil works like this against everybody is basically his message. Well, that would certainly be true of the persecution like the early church experienced, but it would also be true in every area of trouble, test trials, or afflictions that the enemy's behind. And he said, Don't think it's strange. Isn't it interesting that the thing that the Holy Ghost inspired Peter to say about trouble pertains specifically to the way that we all are attacked when we are in times of trouble? What I mean by that is. Well, let me just pose it as a question. How many of you have had the devil tell you that the trouble you're in is unique to you? Anybody not get that? Does the devil not tell that to anybody when they're in the middle of a trouble? It's common. That's what Peter's saying. He's saying it's common. Everything the devil is doing against you or trying to do against you or bringing against you or threatening to do against you. Everything the devil does in his operations against the church is the way that he operate, operates against everybody in the church. Which means if one person is, can escape trouble and gain victory over trouble, everybody can. That's your choice. It has to do with your attitude toward trouble. But it's your choice. I get amused every time I hear somebody say, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask the Lord. Why did he let this happen to me? And I just have to bite my tongue. And think, you silly fool. You don't have to wait to get to heaven. Just ask me. I'll tell you. (laughs) And it all comes down to the word. It all comes down to instability. It all comes down to being double-minded. Or being steadfast. Steadfast in our attitude toward trouble, steadfast in our actions when we are in trouble, steadfast in our confession concerning ourselves and trouble. Now turn back with me to to Ephesians chapter 6. I know this doesn't appeal or apply, I should say. I know this doesn't apply to everybody because, of course, not everybody gets in trouble, right? There are some of you that live such a life that there's never any trouble. There are some of you, I'm sure, that that live in such a perfect manner that there's no opportunity for trouble to come against you whatsoever. It aggravates the stew out of me when I see preachers act that way. Acting like, well, I don't know why you're in the trouble you're in because I never have trouble. Of course, nobody comes out and says that. They just present the picture That some people are above trouble. And nobody is. I think Paul lived a pretty good and pretty solid and pretty steadfast life. Don't you? Well, if that was the key to not having trouble, Paul never got anywhere. Because all he had was trouble. Now, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is writing to the church. One of the later letters that he wrote... So it's probably somewhere around, we, we think Paul died in 66 or 67 AD. So this is probably written sometime in the late 50s, early 60s, perhaps. It's a church, it's written to the church at Ephesus. It's a church that means a lot to Paul. He spent the, the biggest part of his, uh, well, he spent a longer time in Ephesus than he did in any other church. He had the greatest ministry results in Ephesus than anywhere he ever went. God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. The Bible tells us in Acts 19 in Ephesus. It tells us that from Ephesus, the Word of God was preached and spread into the whole world, what the Bible calls the whole world. That doesn't mean everywhere on the planet, but it means the known world at that time. And it all started and came from Ephesus. There was a greater missions outreach from Ephesus than any other place Paul went. There was a greater impact on the city in Ephesus than anywhere Paul went. So much so that the businessmen began complaining to the local authorities, the magistrates, how that Christianity was ruining their business. People wouldn't buy their stuff to offer to idols anymore. And so Paul had to leave Ephesus under threat of his life because of the riots that had been stirred up. Because Christians found out that Christianity was more powerful than idol worship. And then they started burning their stuff and not buying more stuff to offer to idols And that created a problem for businessmen. So Paul, in writing to the church at Ephesus, said in Ephesians chapter 6, here's his closing remarks. The thing that he wants them to remember, if they don't remember anything else, if you didn't get anything else out of this letter that I wrote to you, remember this. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You know, most people complain not about being weak in the Lord. They complain about weakness in themselves. And most people are trying to be strong in themselves when they come to the realization that strength, spiritual strength is necessary and will bring you out of trouble. They try to develop spiritual strength in and of themselves. And the Bible never says one word about you being strong in yourself. Never. It says be strong in the Lord. Smith Wigglesworth said this, I found it very interesting. He was a man that was greatly used of God. He had faith and boldness in operation like hardly anybody else I've ever heard of. There may be a couple that I've read about that was in his same class when it came to believing God and exercising authority, but not many. He said this. He said, when I feel strong, that's when I'm the weakest. Because that strength is based on a feeling. He said, but when I feel the weakest, that's when I'm strong. Because all I have to rely on is the word of God. I like that. The reason I like that is because I don't usually feel strong. There's hope for me and whatever others among us that might not feel strong. Well, that's a change of attitude too then, isn't it? I enjoy feelings as much as the next guy. But they're not a safe guide. Not at all. So he says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Not your, strong, not your strength or your might. Whatever power you may think you have. But be strong in the Lord. In the power of his might. Hebrews 11.6 says, but without faith it's impossible to please God because those that come to him, must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. In other words, the thing that pleases God is when you believe what God says about himself, not about how you feel toward God. And it's the only way to please him. It's the only way to be pleasing unto God. You've got to believe that God is who he says he is if you're going to please God. That's real Bible faith as defined by Paul writing to the Hebrews. And not only do you have to believe that, you've got to believe that he's a rewarder of them to diligently seek him. In other words, he's a rewarder of those that are strong in the Lord and in his power, not their own. Verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The word wiles is a difficult word to translate to the English language because it literally means traveling over. The picture, the word picture that's associated with this Greek word is a road that is traveled. Literally what it's saying is if we'll be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might and gain knowledge of what road the devil travels, we'll be able to defeat him. I think too many people are ignorant of the devil's devices. They're ignorant of the way he operates. You know, that's a real important thing. If you're going to war, any military force that's going to war needs to understand their enemy. If they just go to war without understanding their enemy, they're opening themselves up to some great harm. If you don't know your enemy, it's going to be much more difficult to overcome it. But this says that if we'll put on the whole armor of God, we may be able to stand against the the wiles of the devil. We'll be able to overcome him in the one road that he travels. And there's only one. If you know your enemy has only one means or method or, or manner or way to attack you, all you have to do is set your defenses on that way. You don't have to guard it around the other side. If you know that this is the only way he can come, set your defenses there. Set the forces that you're using to overcome him in that one position. And you get it made. That's what this means. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Well, What is the road that he travels? Deception. Deception. That's why the first thing the devil said to Eve is, has God said? He always questions the word. Always. He always brings doubt, thoughts of doubt, feelings of doubt, or feelings that that um, are prompted by thoughts of doubt. That maybe God's word isn't true. Maybe it won't work for me. Maybe there's some sin in my life that's keeping it from working for me. Maybe there's some secret sin. What is secret sin? I understand sins that you don't want anybody else to know about, secret from them. But what is secret sin that you don't know about? I've always been there when I sinned. (laughs) What's this secret sin stuff? It doesn't exist, folks. It's part of the devil's attack. Making you think there's something that if there was, if it was there, you'd know about. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high or heavenly places. First thing you need to know is your enemy is not natural. First thing you need to know to change your attitude, to count it joy when you fall into trouble. First thing you need to know is the weapons that you have available to you are spiritual weapons because you have a spiritual adversary. Now sickness looks physical, doesn't it? Financial hardship looks physical. But neither one of those are your enemy. There's a spiritual force behind sickness. That's your enemy. There's a spiritual force behind financial hardship. That's your enemy. And the Bible tells us that the armor of God, the weapons God has made available to us, will overcome our spiritual enemy, our adversary. But one of the first things the devil wants to do is he wants to create doubt in your mind about God's word, the faithfulness of God to keep his word, so that he can affect your speech. Because remember, it still comes down to the same rule, and that is you'll have what you say. The devil can't affect what you say unless he brings doubts or thoughts to your mind to influence your speech. He can't just take control of your tongue. He's got to operate against your mind so that you accept those thoughts of doubt. Because if you don't speak them, even the thoughts of doubt in your mind won't affect you, won't hinder you. But once they come out of your mouth, you've made your choice. So he says, put on the whole armor of God, because our enemy is not natural. Wherefore, because of this truth, that our enemy is spiritual, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Another translation says, when evil attacks you. And having done all to stand, stand therefore. Please notice there's a preparation to stand and a period of time to stand. Can you see that? When Paul says, having done all to stand, stand. A lot of people try to stand without having done all to stand. And that opens the door for the devil to tell you, you haven't done what was necessary for you to do. But Paul is telling us by the Holy Ghost That our job is to prepare ourselves with this thing called the armor of God that he's referring to. He'll explain it in a minute. But if we'll prepare ourselves with the armor of God, shore ourselves up with all the things that make up the armor of God, which are our spiritual weapons to overcome the enemy, spiritual weapons to overcome the spiritual adversary. If we'll do everything that we can to stand, to prepare ourselves and make ourselves ready to stand, then the only thing left is just to stand. There comes a point in time where you've done everything you can and should do. So then it's just a matter of standing. Paul talked about this when he wrote to the Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. He talks a lot about rest. He says, There remains a rest, therefore, to the children of God. Well, what rest is he talking about? He's talking about coming to the end of your own works. And then he says, We which have believed have entered into that rest. Well, What he's talking about there then has to mean the same thing that he was talking about to the Ephesians. We which have believed do enter into rest. We could say it this way. We which have believed have put on the armor of God. Because he illustrates it in Hebrews chapter 4. With just like God came to the place where he finished creation and then he rested on the Sabbath. That's the place that we should strive to enter into as well. Where we've done everything there is to do. Now we're standing. I think a lot of people are trying to stand without having done the preparation. And that makes it harder. May even make it a longer battle. And I've seen a lot of people that have heard what was necessary. And have gained the knowledge that was necessary. To put on the armor of God. To prepare themselves to stand. But because of the hardship itself give up and never do the standing they should. It takes both ways. It takes both sides of the coin. Having done all to stand, in order that we may be able to withstand in the evil day when evil attacks us. Having done all to stand, stand therefore. Notice the first thing he talks about. Having your loins girt about with truth. One of the things that just gets me extra crispy in a hurry It's when you hear people talking about your truth and my truth. Well, that may be your truth. But that may not be my truth. Folks, I've got news for you. The truth is the truth. Whether somebody is smart enough to see it or not, the truth is the truth. The truth never changes. Now, it may apply to you in a different way than it applies to me because your situation may be different than mine. But the truth is the truth. There is no your truth, my truth stuff. That's just another of those snowflake, present-day excuses that people use. The first thing he talks about is the truth. Jesus identified the word as truth. John 17, 17, when he's praying to the Father before he goes to the cross. He said, sanctify them, meaning his disciples, and all those of us who believe because of the work of the disciples. He said, sanctify them through thy truth, Lord, thy word is truth. Well, that ends the the discussion. The word is truth. That may not be somebody else's truth because they reject the word. But that doesn't change the truth. It identifies them. Let you know where they're at but it doesn't change the truth and nothing can or will ever change the truth because the truth is just as much a part of God as God himself. First thing Paul talks about is having your loins girded about with truth. If you're not girded with truth, first and foremost, girded with truth, you're not going to know anything about what the devil's doing or why or how to overcome him. Because the word, the Bible is the only place that tells you how you can win in life. Only place having your loins growl about with truth. So that means there's a preparation concerning the truth that we need to do if we're going to stand effectively. That means there's a preparation concerning the word that we're going to have to enter into and accomplish, adhere to, if we're going to be able to count trouble joy. One of the great things, great statements I ever heard made was by John Osteen, and he said, the Bible says over and over and over again, it came to pass. It talks about it, and it came to pass here. And then it came to pass there. And then this came to pass, and then that came to pass. He said, one of the great truths of God is, it came to pass, talking about your trouble, trouble you find yourself in, not it came to stay. And the truth is the foundation for knowing and understanding What will pass? Stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. First two things he starts off with is truth and righteousness. Now how are we going to know anything about the righteousness that is ours? That was part of the revelation that God gave Paul that he preached to the churches and wrote in letters for us to have. But one of the first, if not the first, operations of the devil when, when we find ourselves in trouble is that he starts attacking our worthiness to even take hold of or or expect to receive the help that we need from God. But the reality is that righteousness is like a breastplate that cannot be pierced by any work of the devil, by any attack of evil, if you know the truth. Every time the devil comes and tells you it's not going to work for you, you may have heard it work for somebody else. You may have heard some great testimony about something, and now you're in the same spot or same boat. One of the great things, the great truths that you need to understand is, this is not about you. This is about the truth of God's Word. This is about the faithfulness of God to honor His Word. See, the reality is, folks, in every situation, no matter what you're facing or what I'm facing, in every situation, you've got a promise from the Creator of the universe that's it you've got a promise a promise of victory a promise of deliverance you've got a promise from the creator of the universe we could say it this way I prayed God heard me that's it and that's the way God wants it to be for you he wants that to be your attitude because that is the truth John said it this way. He said, we know that if we've asked anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we, if we know he hears us, we know we have what we ask for. I prayed, God heard, that's it. But our feelings don't lead us in that way, do they? Our feelings or the delay or the time that's involved between when we pray and when we have what we prayed for are the ways that the devil comes against us to question God's word. As far as the devil is concerned, folks, it's always about time. And one of the greatest victories you're ever going to win is the understanding that time is not an issue. It may not be pleasant. The trouble that we're in may not be any fun. And it may not look like it's going to work. But that doesn't change the truth. It doesn't change the fact that you've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And even not living up to that righteousness does not change the fact that you were made so. Now I know that gets a lot of religious people upset. Because they want us to have to earn something. Well we earned the blood of Jesus by God's grace. That should be enough. God says it is. So he says, having your loins girt about with truth and putting on the breastplate of righteousness. Folks, nothing that the devil does can pierce your heart when it comes to a relationship with God. Now, there may be those of us that get to heaven without living up to, without attaining the things that God said were ours. But if you look at the Bible, it says over and over and over again about how God's ears are open to the righteous. It says over and over and over again how the effectual fervent right prayers of a righteous man avails much. The Bible tells us again and again and again that it's our righteousness, our position in God through Christ created by him, not by us. But created by him, that's the secret to the relationship that's available to us where we can ask anything according to his will and habit. You have been made righteous. I don't think any of us have done the meditating on that that we need to. We've scratched the surface, perhaps. We've touched the edge of it. But, folks, the righteousness of God and the place with God that it creates is exactly the same one that Jesus has. Exactly the same one that Jesus has. And because we are in that same place of relationship with God that Jesus is, Made, for, made available for us by his blood and the shedding thereof. There's nothing God won't do. There's nothing God won't do for us. The Bible says that since he gave us his son, he's already done the best thing that he could. How would he withhold anything else? That implies that anything or everything else we could ask him for is nothing in importance. In comparison to the blood of Jesus. having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace notice it's not just the gospel of peace it's the preparation of the gospel of peace now what is the gospel of peace I think in a nutshell maybe we could summarize it by saying the gospel of peace is that God is with us and on our side everywhere we go where your feet go is where you walk And every situation we walk into, God is there. I'll never leave you nor forsake you, he said. God is with us and he's for us and he's in us. That means you can't go anywhere in this earth without God being with you and on your side. Now, that doesn't mean everywhere you go is where he wants you to be. But even at that, he said he'd never leave you or forsake you. Then he says, verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. You operate in faith effectively. And you'll defeat every attack that the devil throws at you. Everyone. Above all, taking the shield of faith. Now, the shield is also an impenetrable instrument, just like the breastplate. And that shield of faith will overcome every attack that the enemy can throw at you if you use it well. It's going to be a sad thing for so many Christians to get to heaven and find out what they could have had or what they could have done with their lives, but forfeited because they wouldn't believe God's word. Bible says when we get to heaven, there's a period of time where we stand before the Lord. He judges us according to our works, whether we did things for eternity or whether we just did earthly and natural and temporal things. And then after that, the Bible says God wipes away every tear. That always intrigued me. Who's going to be crying in heaven? A lot of his children are going to be crying when they find out what they could have had and could have been. When they find out the lost Opportunities. The wasted opportunities. There's going to be a period of time of great sorrow. I don't want to be part of that. Do you? I want to be in the group that's happy and says, we did it. God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, it is our choice which group we want to be in. So above all, taking the shield of faith wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. The helmet of salvation has to do with your mind, renewing your mind to the truth. It has to do with what James was talking about, counting in all joy. It has to do with the changing of our attitudes toward the things that are taking place against us. That's the helmet of salvation. To know who we are in Christ... To know what belongs to us. To know what Jesus has done for us. And what we can have and what we can do. That's the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation, even the renewing of the mind, doesn't mean you know everything in the Bible, everything that the Bible says about itself or says about us. It doesn't mean you know everything. It means whatever situation you encounter, your first thought is what does the word say. That's the renewed mind. There are a lot of people in seminary professors and doctors and all kinds of letters at the end of their name that know a lot about the Bible and they may know the text of the Bible but they don't have a clue on the inside about what it means. Their first thought is not what does the Bible say. For them the Bible is a book like Moby Dick or whatever. And they may have some interesting information about it and its history and its development and protected how God 's protected it through the ages and so forth. there may be a lot of interesting things like that, but the renewed mind is the one that says in every situation, first and foremost, what does the word say about this? The renewed mind is the one is the mind that has committed itself to whatever God says is it that 's it I, I got into a Facebook discussion the other day, and I made the comment they kept saying. Well, that's your opinion. That's your opinion. I'd say what the word says. And they said, that's your opinion. I said, no, it's not my opinion. It's what the word says. And they said, what is your opinion? I said, I don't have one. (laughs) He said, that's impossible. Everybody has an opinion. I said, well, okay, if you want to qualify it like that, my opinion is the word's true. (laughs) Whatever the word says, I change my thinking to line up with it. Man, that got them frosty. They didn't like that at all. They said that's dangerous. Well, yeah, it's dangerous to the devil. It seems to be dangerous to you. I know I'm on God's side when I stick with the word. I don't know what side somebody else is on. That's the helmet of salvation, folks. It's thinking in line with God's Word. And if you don't know what God's Word says, you find out because the Word means first and foremost the most to you that anything could possibly mean. That's the renewed mind. I used to hear Brother Hagin when I first got to Bible school, I'd hear Brother Hagin talk about the renewing of the mind. And he'd start writing off scriptures and he'd quote a chapter or two just as a normal course of his preaching, just as a side trail or something like that. And I'd think, man, I'm never going to know the Word like that. And then I realized the renewed mind is not about knowing everything. It's about knowing that the answer to everything is the Word. That gave me great comfort as I renewed my mind to the Word. Now I know a lot more about it than I did. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. What does a sword do? It cuts things. The word of God cuts things. Now one of the things that Paul said. Writing to the church. Writing to the, the Hebrews. One of the things he said. Is that the word of God is quick and powerful. And sharper than any two-edged sword. Dividing asunder. Dividing between soul and spirit. Now soul is your mind, your will and your emotions. So the first thing that the Bible will do. That Paul is telling us that the word of God will do for us. Is separate between soul and And spirit. It'll divide between natural things and spiritual things. The reason that's important is remember, your enemy, your adversary is not natural, no matter what natural effect or circumstances or consequences you're dealing with. Your enemy is not natural. Your enemy is spiritual. And the only thing that is ever recorded in the scripture to tell us what will divide or separate or distinguish between soul and spirit is the word of God. The Bible talks about, Paul uh, wrote to Timothy talking about rightly dividing the word of truth. Well, if it can be rightly divided, it can be wrongly divided. And the word's the only thing that's going to determine whether it's right or wrong. The word is the only thing that's going to determine the effectiveness of the power of God in your life. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Notice verse 18. Praying always. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. Let me ask you a question. When Paul talks about overcoming the enemy and being strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, he's got to be talking about, and I'm just going to put it in different terms, he's got to be talking about A spirit-led or a spirit-filled life, doesn't he? Will this Holy Ghost ever lead you apart from or away from what he just wrote there, what Paul just wrote there by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost in Ephesians 6 about putting on the armor of God and defeating the devil? Well, if the Holy Ghost leads you into the truth, which Jesus said he would do, if he's going to lead you or guide you into all truth, he's going to guide you into that kind of life, that manner of life, That brings victory over the trouble that comes to all of us. Right? Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Notice what Paul said, inspired by the Holy Ghost, beginning in verse 18. He says, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. The word filled is kind of a play on words. It literally means be being filled. It's talking about a continuous action. It's talking about something that's ongoing. Be being filled with the Spirit. In other words, keep your relationship with God and the Holy Ghost fresh. Don't try to live on yesterday's manna. Keep things new. Keep things fresh with God. Well, how do you do that? He says, be being filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now, if the person that's wearing the armor of God is not doing this then how can we say he's done all that he can do to prepare to stand? See the point? See, we look at these things as different or separate issues, and they're not. They're all part of the same thing. So even when the Bible says, where Paul tells us to put on the armor of God so that we can pray effectively, Paul told us, writing to the Philippians, In chapter 4 of Philippians, Paul wrote and said that we should be anxious or careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let our request be made known unto God. Well, he's talking about the same thing. He's not talking about different things. He's talking about the same thing. He just gave us more detail about what all that means in Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, than he did writing to the Philippians. He didn't want the Ephesians to pray always with the armor of God. And then the Philippians, you're just on your own, by the way, pray sometimes. Holy Ghost wants the same thing for all of us, right? So where we see in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18 where he said, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance for all saints. He's got to mean the same thing that he tells the, the Philippians. Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. The only difference there is he adds thanksgiving when he's talking to the, to the Philippians. But he's got to mean the same thing if he wants us all to live the same kind of spirit-led, spirit-filled life, Right? So how do we live a spirit-filled, spirit-led life? Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now remember where we started. The Holy Ghost's first message to the church is how to deal with trouble. Point number one. Change your attitude toward it. Count it as joy. It's not joyful, but you're going to have to count it as joy. How are you going to do that? How are you going to do that? Folks, I'm, going to turn, I'm not going to ask you to turn because it will take you forever to find it in your Bibles. Your Bible just doesn't fall to this scripture, I know. But in Jonah, the book of Jonah, there is a book of Jonah. Jonah is one of my heroes. Now, when we think of Jonah, you think of the guy that ran from God. Right. Well, that may identify a part of his life <coughs> or a certain place where he was in life, but how he handled the trouble he found himself in was absolutely phenomenal. You remember the story God told him: go to Nineveh. Nineveh was the, the Assyrian capital. The Assyrians were evil people. They hated the Jews. They uh, Burdened the Jews, they captured the Jews, they killed the Jews, they did all kinds of things. And so God said to Jonah, go to Nineveh, because if they don't repent within some short period of time, I don't remember what it was, 30 days or something ridiculous like that. He said within a certain period of time, they're going to be destroyed. Well, Jonah comes up with a plan. He says, I don't like these people, so I'm not going. All I got to do is hold out for 30 days. Then they'll be destroyed. So what does he do? He gets on a ship going the opposite direction. But God sees where ships are going. <laughs> and he gets to a certain place out in the middle of the sea and all kinds of trouble, all kinds of storms come upon him. And everybody, the captain gets with everybody and realizes this is a supernatural storm. Some way or another, he knew that. And so he said, pray to your gods, whoever you serve, whoever you worship, pray to, let's see if we can get help from somebody. And nothing happens. The storm continues. So finally Jonah walks up to the captain of the ship and says, it's me, it's me. This is all because of me. Throw me overboard and you'll be all right. Now, folks, he's not willing to go to Nineveh so that they can be saved. But he's willing to, to give his life so that the captain and the crew can be saved. Anybody want to explain that to me? So he tells he tells the captain, he said, throw me over. Your only hope for survival is to throw me over. But the captain hears that, and he says, I can't throw this guy over. If it's his God that's bringing this thing against us, then if I throw him overboard, he's really going to be mad because this guy's got to be important to his God. So then the storm will get even worse, so he wouldn't do it. And finally, he convinced Jonah convinced the captain, so they threw him overboard. And the Bible says that Jonah was swallowed by a fish. God had prepared a fish. I love that phrase, God prepared a fish. I don't know what you're in the middle of, folks, but there's a fish for you. <laughs> now, I'd be willing to bet that when Jonah was swallowed by this fish, he's not thinking this is good. Now, don't get the idea that I always see the. we go to Disneyland a lot with our grandkids. Well, not with our grandkids. We go a lot of times just for me. But um, <laughs> just being honest. <clears throat> But one of the rides there at uh, uh, the Storybook Tales or whatever it's called has got this mock-up of the giant whale that was uh, called Monstro in the story of Pinocchio. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, good. I thought you was going to act like you never went and didn't like this kind of stuff, so you just stay quiet. <laughs> you could have really gotten me if you'd been thinking quickly enough. Anyway, the boats travel through Monstro's mouth. And I guess that's the idea that I always had used to have about Jonah. This giant fish, whale, whatever, swallows Jonah. But not to worry, it's big enough for him to have a couch in there too. (laughs) And then it occurred to me one day, that's not the way this worked. Jonah finds himself in the belly of the fish with everything else that a fish that size could eat. You ever seen him cut open a shark? They'll pull license plates out of the thing. I don't know if he ate a card and that's all that was left. Or... <laughs> but there's all kinds of weird and nasty stuff that comes out of one of these big fish that they cut open. Jonah's got seaweed wrapped around his head. He's got fish juices eating into his skin. Notice what this guy does. Here's a guy that's run from God. You talk about a guy that's unworthy for God's help. This is him. But he seemed to know something about God that most people nowadays don't ever figure out. I'm going to start in Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly and said, I cried by reason of my infliction unto the Lord and he heard me. Now, this is his prayer. He's saying, I cried unto the Lord and he heard me. He seems to know he's got a promise from the creator of the universe too. I cried unto the Lord by reason of my infliction and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I and thou heard my voice. For thou hadst cast me into the deep in the midst of the seas and the floods compassed me about all thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. He had every reason to think that God was against him. He had every reason to think that he's not going to make it rightly so. Because of his disobedience to what God told him to do. But he still kept his eyes on God. The waters compassed me about even to the soul. The depths closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped around in my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains... The earth with her bars was about me forever, yet thou hast brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. Let me say something here just for a moment. If you go back and look at the the Hebrew language and the words that are used for some of this, uh, the, the descriptions of Jonah and where he went, the bottom of the mountain, the foundation of the mountains, and that kind of stuff, that's not kind of the kind of things that fish do. He's not talking about just his experience in the fish. He's speaking prophetically about a lot of things that Jesus paid for in the belly of the earth. The English translation of that won't show it, but the Hebrew language that's used does. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. He knows God still hears him. Even though he messed up, even though the trouble that he's in, even though the, the acid... In the fish's stomach, eating into his flesh, and the seaweeds wrapped around his head. All of that stuff was his fault. He still knew God would hear him. Now, folks, I want to submit something to you. He had not been made righteous like you have. He's a servant of God. And he has that much confidence and understanding about the one he serves. Bible says you're a child of God. Bible says you've been born again into the image of Christ. That your righteousness is of Him, God, not of yourself. Jonah doesn't have that. He didn't have any of that. Then he says, after he talks about looking unto God's temple, praying to God, verse 8, Jonah chapter 2, verse 8. This is why he's my hero. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Jonah is saying, he's telling us, the Bible is telling us, look at your circumstances and miss out on everything God even wants to do for you. You keep your eyes focused on the circumstances and you will not receive what God wants and has for you. You will not receive what Jesus has already paid for. You'll not receive your healing. You'll not receive your financial provision. You will not receive the things that Jesus paid for with his blood. It's everything. Everything is about what you look at. That's why the Holy Ghost said, Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. So Jonah says, They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Notice what he calls the fish that he's in, he calls it a lying vanity. If you've ever heard a faith statement, that's one. This fish that I'm in, by my own doing, is a lying vanity. Because God's will for me is not to be eaten and swallowed and, and digested by a fish. God's will for me is to live and obey him and do what he tells me to do. God's will is for me to be on top, the head and not the tail. Above and not beneath. Victorious in every area. More than a conqueror through him that loved us. That's the will of God. Now you do not have to accept or take hold of any of that. But if you're going to. You're going to have to refuse to observe lying vanities. You're going to have to refuse to accept the thoughts of doubt. That the devil brings to you about why it can't work. Or why it won't work. Or why you're not worthy for it to work. Or whatever else he tells you. And you're not going to be able to look at. The difficulty of your circumstances, whatever they may be, no matter how difficult they might be. You're not going to be able to look at those circumstances as the end of the story. It may be true that you're facing financial ruin. It may be true, factual, that you're facing sickness and disease and a diagnosis of it. But that's not the end of the story. It's not God's will that that be the end of the story. So Jonah says, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercies. But, verse 9, but I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that which I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Somewhere along the way, Jonah said, okay, God, I'll do it. I'll go to Nineveh. I'll preach so that the people there can be saved if they repent. I'll do what I wasn't willing to do to begin with. Get me out of this fish and I'll do it. Now notice the answer to his prayer. And the Lord spoke unto the fish and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. The answer to God's prayer for Jonah, I don't know if this will be the case for you, is fish vomit. And notice how it works. God spoke to the fish. God's word was Jonah's answer. Now, folks, the Bible says that we're to offer sacrifices of praise unto him. Not just when things are going good. It says we're to offer the sacrifice of praise. Over and over and over again, the Bible tells us that when the people of God, facing insurmountable odds, sang praises unto God, the Lord said ambushments. When Paul and Silas were in prison in Acts chapter 16 at midnight, they prayed and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. And God caused an earthquake to shake the place loose. And everybody was set free. That's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 5 where he says, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The spirit led life. He's going to lead you first to the knowledge of the word concerning your case, your situation. He's going to lead you to pray in line with what God's word says about your situation. And then he's going to lead you into offering praises and thanksgiving unto the Lord. Every trouble that is overcome, every circumstance, every adversity that has gained victory, that somebody gains victory over. Comes about by praising God. Everyone. Everyone. So having done all to stand. And standing. Means we're thanking God in the middle of our trouble. We're counting it joy. It's not joy. It won't feel like joy. And when you offer those sacrifices of praise. The reason they're sacrifices. Is because you don't feel like praising God. But every battle that's won. Is won through Praise after preparing, after girding yourself with what you need, after gaining the knowledge and applying that knowledge to your life, the standing is about praising God. The Bible says Abraham was strong in faith, giving glory to God. If you're not praising God in the middle of your trouble, don't expect your trouble to end. But thank God we can end it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you so much and we thank you for all the victory that we have in Jesus. We thank you that your word is true in every area and every respect. We thank you, Father, that, that there is no problem, no difficulty, no test, no trial, no affliction that's greater than the power that's in your word. Thank you, Father, that you've made a means of escape, a way of victory for every one of us. So, Lord, we'll count it joy we will recognize the importance and the blessedness of learning your faithfulness to keep your word even more importantly than the trouble that we're in thank you that the trying of our faith develops something more important than the trouble it brings us to an understanding that there's no problem that's too hard for you so Lord we claim victory Through the blood of Jesus and the word of God. We declare. That we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. We declare. That we're abundantly provided for. We declare father that we're more than conquerors. Through Christ Jesus who loved us. We declare. That no weapon formed against us shall prosper. We declare that because we fear you. Because we've set our love on you. You deliver us. Because we've known your name. You set us on high. When we call upon you, you answer us. You are with us in trouble. You deliver us and you honor us. With long life, you satisfy us, Lord, and show us your salvation. So, Mr. Devil, no matter what it looks like, no matter what you're doing in our lives, we refuse to give in. We refuse to observe lying vanities. We declare that we're free by the precious blood of Jesus. We declare that victory is ours. We declare that we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. We declare that our Father provides for us abundantly. In Jesus' name. We declare that victory is ours. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Father, that our shield, the faith that we exercise, quenches all the fiery darts of the enemy so that we and only we are left standing As the enemy flees. Father we love you. We thank you Holy Spirit for guiding us. We thank you for guiding us into the truth of the word. We thank you for guiding us into the sacrifice of praise. We will not forsake our own mercies. We will not observe lying vanities. In Jesus name. Amen. 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 Let's all stand and lift our hands and thank God for a moment. Father, we love you. We thank you that your word is the answer to every situation. We thank you that we're free. We thank you that we're delivered. We thank you that we're healed. We thank you, Father. What a privilege it is to walk in your truth, the truth of the word of God, the truth. We love you, Father we thank you for loving us we forget not all your benefits Lord you redeem our life from destruction you crown us with loving kindness and tender mercy you satisfy our mouth with good things we love you Father we thank you that you're at work in Jesus name in Jesus name in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. 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 You know God wants you to win more than you want to win, don't you? The way we know that is that he's made a way for every one of us to win before we have been got in this mess that we find ourselves in now. Hallelujah. 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 Say it with me, victory is mine. Victory is mine in the, name of Jesus. in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We love you. We thank you so much for being with us. We'll let you go. Come on back and be with us for healing school tonight if you can. Have a great day.